Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Some families have a dad and two children, a boy and a girl. I am a product of transracial adoption myself. And I now have two children that I'm fostering that are both from the same mom and dad. So I'm actually now in a transracial fostering to adoption scenario because they are Puerto Rican and Italian. And I am half African-American and, and some sort of white that I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> Sometimes white people will adopt children of color. And that's just a fact. And I think that people just need to embrace that. But I think what needs to change is that there just needs to be a more solid educational aspect for white parents before they actually even get to the point of finalizing anything. Welcome, listener, to Some Families, your number one queer parenting podcast. I am your host, Lottie Jeffs. And I am your host, Stu Oakley. And, oh, hang on. I think there's someone else here, Lottie. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I'm your guest host, Leon. Hello, listeners. Hello, Stu, and hello, Lottie. Hey, Leon. Thank you so much for joining us today for this very special threesome edition of Some Families. Oh, oh, we're getting kinky, Lottie. I love it. <laughs> There's no one better I'd like to have a threesome with than Leon. Okay, we're going too far uh, now. Yeah. <laughs> but, listener, if you haven't already binged season one, go do so now. But if you did, you know that we spoke to the wonderful Leon last season. There was so much still to cover that we didn't ask him about. And he is just an all-round fabulous guy. So we wanted you back. Thank you. What an introduction. Well, firstly, thanks for having me back. It's great. And I just wanted to say thank you for the opportunity to um, tell my story. I wanted to come back just to say hi. And I know last time we spoke about my adoption story, but there's, there's so much more to speak about in around race and adoption as well. So I've invited a friend of mine, Nathan, another adoptive dad who lives in the concrete jungles, AKA New York City, to talk to us later about his adoption journey. He was also adopted as a child and he was a transracial adoptee, which is um, something which we'll delve into later. How did you meet Nathan? I met him through my group that I set up actually, Black Gay Dads Global, and it's on Instagram and Facebook. And essentially it's a, you know, a support group for black and dual heritage gay dads. Amazing. Wow. You've gone global, Leon. I love it. What's the um, handle so people can find you if they're listening? Black Gay Dads Global, um, with a dot in between all of those words, on Instagram, 
Twitter and Facebook. Nice. So before we talk to Nathan, Leon, fill us in. How have you been? What have the past few weeks been looking like for you? And how are you surviving and thriving in this <laughs> crazy time? I feel like I've basically been in lockdown since we last spoke, which you kind of have. <laughs> I think all... we were. We were in lockdown yeah, we? yeah. when you came on before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, well, <laughs> Never that's ending. the same. Being a parent, as I'm sure you guys can both relate, and many of our listeners in, in this period has, has been tough. Just being a one-man band, you know, it has been quite intense at times, but it is what it is. I think when you're a parent, as you as you know, you just, you just make it work, don't you? The book is still there. When I spoke to you last, I think I was going down the self-publishing route. So I now have an agent. So if you want to talk to me in the future, speak to my agent. And she's basically... <laughs> I've, I've literally waited my whole life to say that. Actually. Just for listeners who might be coming to this episode without having listened to the um, original episode where you told us about your children's book, you've written a children's book about a black, gay, single, adoptive dad. It's a book really to normalise my nuclear family and many other people's nuclear families out there, but mm. also just to teach children empathy and understanding and that there is you know, more than the 2.4 Caucasian mm. family unit, which is often that's the narrative that's pushed so the book is called you me and lots and lots of love well good luck and also something leon that we really want to talk to you about and something that we're obviously going to touch upon with nathan in our interview with him nathan is based in the u.s who we know has a very different adoption process to the one that is in the uk can you talk a little bit about diversity as a black dad within the adoption community and within the adoption process even within the UK? My understanding is that there are many more children of black, Asian, Middle Eastern ethnicity that are that are waiting for adoption over over white children. Yeah, um, I mean, the London region, around 37% of white children are waiting 18 months plus for a match, whereas 49% of children from mainly black, dual heritage, mixed Asian backgrounds are waiting. So it's like 49%, they're waiting for the same period. So it's a significantly higher number. Again, something that I've spoken about quite a lot. There's just a lack of people from the ethnic minority communities coming forward. There's various reasons for that. A lot of it stems from maybe not trusting the system. If you look at how structural and institutional racism has been in the UK and also prejudice and um, I think that has a lot to do with it if you look at how let's say the Windrush generation were treated I mean they were invited to come to this country to to build this country the motherland so to speak and they came and they were met with no blacks no dogs no Irish so I think historically there's always been that thing there um you know if you look at maybe some of the jobs that people of colour are doing in comparison, you know, maybe they feel, you know, do I earn enough? You know, is my home big enough? Do I have the extra room? So I think there's also a lot of things that, small things that the community may focus on, which aren't even a thing, but it's just the lack of maybe information or maybe they're not really seeing themselves represented. I mean, I never saw anybody that looked like me in, in the adoption world, so to speak. And I think, you know, representation matters as as we all know, and whether it be a children's book and, and seeing themselves in it or in, in the adoption world. So I think maybe just due to a lack of representation and maybe not understanding the process as well, because it can be quite detailed and quite intrusive. And I think culturally, um, a lot of people, not just from black communities, and not exclusively either, but culturally, I think there's a thing about privacy and 
you know, allowing people into your home and really delving into your family business, it, it can feel quite vulnerable for a lot of people. That's really interesting. And do you think it's also the fact and, you know, transracial adoption is something we come on to a lot in this episode as well. But do you think it's also the 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 amount of children who are waiting is also down to the fact that there are many white adopters who are simply not choosing children from a different ethnic background? Um, it can work both ways. I, mean, I think transracial adoption is more common in the USA than compared to the UK. And as silly as it sounds, but some white parents just want a cute black baby. And it's that, it sounds silly to say that, but I've, I've heard that. So I think, you know, with transracial adoption, I don't have an issue with it. I think that the correct work needs to be done around educating yourself, being comfortable in majority black spaces, understanding black history. And when I say black history, I don't just mean slavery. Like there's more to our history than just trauma. And I feel like it's it's something that needs to, you need to have a lot of thought before entering into it because a lot of the transracial adoptees that I, I currently speak with through my platform, all of them, not a lot of them, all of them have got or have had massive issues around identity, fitting in, you know, not feeling comfortable in majority black spaces. And this is even some black transracial adoptees as well. So it, it can be quite problematic if it's not, handled in the right way from from the adopters so our guest today is from new york city and he's a friend of leon's as leon said and he's kindly agreed to talk to us about his own adoption story as a parent and also as an adoptive child himself his name is nathan jungerberg and we have had to bleep his little girl's name out of the episode hi nathan welcome to some families how are you Hello. I'm good. Thank you for having me. I know I've been elusive lately, um, <laughs> but it's good to see you. <laughs> good to see you too. So obviously we know each other, but can you just start by telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and your family? Yes. So I'm a writer based in Brooklyn. I am a product of transracial adoption myself, and I now have two children that I'm fostering that are both from the same mom and dad. So I'm actually now in a transracial fostering to adoption scenario because they are Puerto Rican and Italian and I am half African American and and some sort of white that I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> so I've got an 18-month-old who's been with me since she was two weeks old and I have a nine-week-old, her brother, who just came to us uh, seven weeks ago now? Good Lord, yeah. So wow. I'm uh, up to my neck in dirty diapers and spit up and a bunch of other stuff. <laughs> Fabulous. You've got your hands full then. I do. Yeah. But I'm managing. I keep telling people I'm still standing. So. And just for our listeners that don't know, can you clarify the term trans- transracial adoption? Yeah. I mean, from, from my perspective, it, it would just be when parents of one race adopt a child that are outside of their race. I mean, from my specific situation growing up, my parents were white. And then I was raised in a family with a Korean sister and a multiracial sister. And then now I'm continuing that reality in in my own family. So you were adopted yourself, Nathan? Yes, at uh, two weeks old. Yes. Wow. Can you tell us a bit about that experience for you and and how it's informed your attitude to parenting today? Yeah, definitely. I think first and foremost, my parents 
were and are just really loving people. So we definitely got like heavy doses of that. On the flip side of that, though, you know, they they raised us in all over the Midwest. But I grew up in a small city in Wisconsin in I think we moved there in the late 70s. And, you know, it was like 99.9% white. And I just have to stay say even still at this age, I'll be turning 50 this year. It's still the one weight that I carry in regard to I think childhood trauma, because I actually finally was able to embrace the fact that it was, I it can actually call it trauma, because it was extremely traumatic growing up in that environment. And I'm still kind of unraveling the, the beautiful mess that I was brought into <laughs> as a child. Mm, oh, and you asked how it relates today and into yeah, my parenting today, yeah. correct? I think it's made me extra conscious, because I forget sometimes that my children are of a race, you know, separate from me because I'm, I'm mixed black and white. So we actually look similar. People constantly think that they're my biological children. And it's so easy to kind of fall into that. Um, many times people will send books and gifts and it's always kind of rooted in African American, this and that. And I have to keep telling people like they're, you know, they're half Puerto Rican. So I need to get some, you know, Hispanic type of things as well. And, you know, I'm considering moving back to Minneapolis, where I lived for 15 years before here, which is much more diverse than the city that I grew up in. But if I get to adopt them, God willing. And so I'm just constantly thinking of those things. Like, I want to make sure that I have a community surrounding them there so that they can still be rooted in their culture. And I've learned how to make some of their food, which I'm going to make tonight for the babysitter. And I'm committed. In a nutshell, can you kind of talk us through the fostering um, strict adoption process in the USA? Because I know it's very, very different to in the UK. And did you come across any yes. problems um, being LGBTQ plus and a person of colour? Right. Well, I'll start with the LGBTQ plus. No, they just... So in New York State, the, I think the laws are different than other states in the US, but they just passed something a while back that says that all foster parents have to be LGBTQ affirming. Although sadly, I guess a lot of them go through training and, and say that they are. And then when they get the call uh, for like a trans child or something, they tell them that it's against their religion. And then they like hang up on the, the, the home finders, which I think is just despicable. But they were from the get go, they told me that that's a huge part of kind of the mission. And, you know, being a person of color, no, because the agency that I work through is in downtown Brooklyn. So the majority of the people that work there are black. And I'd say probably 90 some percent of the children in foster care are black. There's a lot of differences between here and the UK. And I think one that's just been really challenging for me is the length of time that they give the birth parents, they do something that is like a minimum of 15 months before they can file the TPR, the termination of parental rights. So we're getting to that point with my foster daughter. But then what I found out is that even after that, they will still give the parents up to a year and a half to two years after that's filed to still get their act together, which I think is just ridiculous because, I mean, by the time... July rolls around, she will have been with me for two years. Even considering to take a child out of my home that's been with me since she was two weeks old, it's just, it's ridiculous to me. Nathan, did you consider a private adoption in the States? Or for you, was it always going through 
the agencies that you've been through? Yeah, because I'm a freelance artist, it wasn't really an option financially just because of the cost. And also the same with surrogacy. I have other gay male, black gay male friends who are more financially uh, well-to-do. And so they're looking into those options. But for me, just kind of like, because of the fi finance, the financial reality, it just seemed more feasible. Um, although I wasn't super excited about the reality of having to do the foster aspect first, like I was really more interested in finding a child that was legally free to adopt, uh, which could have been because the parents had passed away or like voluntarily surrendered them, or they have a program called Safe Harbor where parents can drop kids off at like hospitals and police stations, like no questions asked. And then they, they immediately are available. And you still have to foster, but it's like a six month process. And it, it just, it's a more expedited reality. I don't have a situation like that though, <laughs> unfortunately. Mm. And did you have the option, because with fostering to adopt, did, was that something you straight away were up for doing? I, I'd imagine it's quite similar to the process here in the sense of foster to adopt is you get them straight away when they're put into care rather than being put into a another foster family so was that always like what you wanted or do, were you looking at adopting children who'd been potentially older children who'd been in the care system for a while well from what I understand there are children who go through foster to adopt who have been in multiple homes as well even they can be younger like five or six and um, I just somehow ended up getting the newborns, which was not my intention at all. Like I went into this, I said, I don't want babies and I don't want teenagers. Um, I wanted more like three years old, but it just happened that this is how things unfolded. It was just, it, it kind of popped up out of the blue and I just decided to answer the call. So do you mind if we just hop back in time a little bit? Tell us a bit about your experiences as a child mm -hmm. and you talked about trauma and I don't know how, to what extent you're comfortable talking about it, but if you could just explain to us a bit more about what that trauma looked like and felt like for you as a black yeah. child with white parents. Yeah, no, and I, I'm like an open book when it comes to that, because I always feel like regardless of someone's race or cultural background, stories of kind of like trying to piece your scattered self together is kind of like a universal theme. I mean, I think just from the get-go, it's like... the reality of being you know five years old in this like family that's like uniquely different from everyone and just going to a restaurant and going to a store having everyone turn and stare you know because as kids like you kind of want to just like blend in and you don't want to stand out and then to have like the spotlight be on you all the time numerous scenarios from elementary school to high school where the white kids were always intrigued by my hair and wanted to like touch my hair or like stick things in my hair. Fortunately, I wasn't really subjected to a lot of like name calling, like the N word, I think I only heard like a couple times, but it was just subtle things that were just kind of always there. Um, and then also too, like having parents who were well-intentioned and loving but just did not have the life experience or the consciousness to really fully be able to undertake facilitating like the, these experiences. Like I remember one time when I was eight years old and uh, was in, in history class or something, and they were reading something about Africa. And one of the 
kids mispronounced the river Niger and it you know all the kids turned and looked at me and it was just awful and I remember I went home from school and tried to talk to my parents and they just weren't equipped and so they were constantly dismissing like dismissal you know dismissal was the root of a lot of the trauma and I think at eight eight or nine years old I finally just realized like no one is here for me like I am completely out here on my own and so I kind of it really affected my emotional and psychological reality because I became a complete loner. I was extremely introverted and just wouldn't let people get close to me. Um, and I'm still, again, like I mentioned, like I'm still unpacking all of that stuff to this day. How do you feel as an adult? I mean, you said you're nearly 50. How do you feel all that trauma? I mean, does it still affect you to this day? Do you still carry things around in regards to your identity, let's say, or acceptance within the Black community? Like, how, how does that affect you to this present day? I think what's changed is that my coping mechanisms have become extremely fine-tuned through, like, years of therapy and just, like, work that I've done on myself. But a lot of those situ situations and scenarios still present themselves. I mean, I'm you know, one of the things that happens a lot with other Black people is the, the commenting on how I speak. And like that used to really, really kind of be like a punch in the stomach. And then as I got older, I just really started to realize like I had no choice over the way that I was raised, like the way that I speak and the way that I, I, talk, I, I walk and, and whatnot. So many different things are a product of the environment that I was raised in, you know. So I still get triggered, but they don't, they don't take me down as much as they did before because I'm really able to kind of like look at them, look at the situation from a distance. And interestingly enough, like I, I have a lot of gratitude towards those experiences. And it sounds strange sometimes when I say that, but because of the work that I do and the stories that I tell, you know, they're all deeply rooted in like expressing layers of like black humanity and um, the search for self and whatnot. And I just feel like having gone through those experiences which do kind of represent such a core aspect of human beings like searching for who am I like where do I fit in like where is home it gives me a deep understanding of like the human condition and it gives me it just I feel like it's a it's a positive attribute to my my writing tools yeah and also how did you take the steps with your adoptive family as well to talk to them in the when you were older about this I, I mean uh, did you and how did you address it with them there were many conversations that took place over many 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 years and most of those situations were dismissed and you know I would have kind of like a meltdown like every five years or every three years or something like that. And so finally, when I was 24 or 25, I had, you know, since moved away from home and was living in, in a different city. And my dad finally wrote me a letter, which I still have. And he admitted to his failures in, um, I guess, you know, giving attention to my cultural needs and whatnot. And his explanation was, you know, it, it made sense to me. You know, he came from a farm life in Minnesota back in the 40s. You know, his parents survived the Great Depression. And, you know, he grew up with, like, no heat in the house and just not having food and a lot of fear and anxiety that was, you know, connected to that. And so his mission when he had children was just to give them the things that he didn't have. But being a white man and not having gone through the extra layer of oppression and struggle that that I did that just completely you know evaded his his um, perception and 
I think he said he was in denial. Like he said, all those times you came to us, like I just didn't want to actually have to touch that, to actually think that I ended up failing you in a huge way like my parents failed me. But he just said, I wanted to apologize. And it, it healed like so much just within an instant. It was like, bam, it completely repaired a lot of the, the holes that we had. But it took a long time, you know, it took a really long time to get to that point. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What do you think your parents could have done differently? Because um, I, I speak to, as you know, a lot of transracial adoptees at the moment, and it's the small things that a lot of people don't think about, whether it be music, hair, for example, um, culture, mm. history, acknowledging that. What, 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 is it, what are the key things that you think, looking back, if they'd have done this, things would have been easier for you or better for you? Well, I think first and foremost, like there were other Black people in our town like granted there was like a city of 50,000 people and there was maybe like 10 or 15 other black people but I think it would have been really helpful had they sought out early on just some families maybe that we could you know spend time with Um, at one point they did try there were some other transracial adoptees that lived near us but it was already too late like I was 10 11 12 like you know about ready to go through puberty and then I rejected it. Like, I just, I didn't want to have to do that because it was the constant reminder that I was different. So I think things like that, books, would have been really valuable. I think most importantly, though, just acknowledging the pain that I brought to the table, I think would have been wonderful because that dismissal is the worst thing that parents can do. The worst thing. Yeah. I think that's great advice for, for parents generally, as well as being very good advice for this specific scenario. I think sometimes as a parent, your instinct is just to make it better all the time. Mm. And I can totally see myself doing that sometimes as well. But to just kind of lean into their anguish or their pain and and not just say, oh, it'll be okay," or they didn't mean it or 
Mm. You know, it because it, it's hard because it opens you up then as well. And like we come as parents to parenting with our own shit, don't we? <laughs> We're being triggered all the time and it's not easy. And I suppose what you learn from presenting this show with Stu, what I've learned about adoption is that through adoption, you are forced to ask yourself more questions and be challenged on things a lot more than you are as a biological parent or any other kind of parent. And I think one of the, I think what's so positive about your story, Nathan, is that like you have been through adoption and now you are adopting. And I think that's a really positive message for a lot of people out there. And kind of on that point, can you talk a bit about what it's like to be an adult adoptee, especially for our listeners and myself and Leon, you know, who we have adopted children and we want to know what they're going to be thinking and feeling when, when they grow up. I believe you have a relationship now with your biological parents. So what has that whole experience been like for you and and how you navigated that also with your with adopted family? Well, that's another positive, I think, in a credit towards my adoptive parents that they were always very open and transparent about everything. I've encountered children sometimes that were transracial adoptees and with white parents through uh, work that I've done. And the parents will say that the kids are adopted. And I'm like, oh, well, I am too, and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, shh, you know, he doesn't know. And it's like this five-year-old Colombian boy that's like my complexion with like black hair. And the mom has like, you know, blonde hair and blue eyes. And I'm like, I just kind of l- drop it. But I'm like, that is so messed up. Like that's going to just totally mess that kid up in the head. But I always knew, like, I feel like my parents started with us when we were really young and, you know, they told us stories about just, which I'm going to do with my kids too, that, you know, your parents just couldn't take care of you. And so they loved you enough that they were willing to give you um, it to a different family that could take care of you and give you everything that you needed. So I didn't really ever grow up with that abandonment story hanging over me that a lot of people do. And then you know, I found my birth parents when I was 25. So it's been almost 20, it'll be 25 years ago this year. And my adoptive parents were extremely supportive. And that's not always the case. Like a lot of adoptive parents get really nervous and jealous and just afraid that like, you're just going to like leave them or whatever. But they created a space for me to just explore this on my own. And they participated in the reunion and that was just beautiful, you know, just to have that acknowledgement and support in, in a way that made me feel like I was doing something good and not something bad, like behind their back. And that just, you know, that that was a whole other Pandora's box in kind of a good and bad way. But I'm glad I waited until I was 25 because there was so many emotions that flew out of this door mm. when I opened it that I was not prepared for. And I guess I knew going into it that I had to be ready for this barrage of all this stuff, because it was a lot. It was a lot. And I'm still kind of sorting through that stuff 25 years later. <laughs> and did as yeah. part of that Pandora's box, did it also open up wider family, biological family as well? Because that's something I'm always curious with, with my children is like, yeah. when it comes to cousins, uncles, grandparents, that, you know, that mm-hmm. side of things as well. It did. I have a brother and sister on my white side of the family. And then I've got a brother and sister on my black side of the family. They live in the Bahamas. And like, there's a whole slew of relatives down there. And my birth mother as well. I had a relationship with her mother who passed away like five years ago. Her father was actually racist. And that was the reason why, the main reason why she had to give me up. And he never knew, 
he knew that she had gotten pregnant, but he never knew that she had like gave birth to a biracial child, even on his deathbed. He they never told him, which I don't know. That's a whole no. other thing. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot, you know, being like this singular identity and then all of a sudden you're thrust into these family units that have this history together and then I'm just like once again was like the outsider you know I'm like on one hand there were all these similarities and really cool things that I found and uncovered but then it's like I had to face that that consistent trend of like I am the black sheep I'm always the black sheep like literally and figuratively you know with again on identity I really want to speak about this so our listeners can really understand it because it's something that I speak about on my platform quite a lot and I've spoken to quite a few transracial adoptees and they've also said they went through a phase of almost rejecting their their blackness and I'm focused on their blackness because that's kind of that's generally the makeup of the transracial adoptees that I speak with they go through a phase of rejecting that side of them and not identifying with it to the opposite and really seeking out friends partners culture like almost like a sponge it's almost like they're making up for lost time oh yeah I mean, I would have to say, like, honestly, I feel like, and there still is, like, I mean, I'm, I'm half white, of course. I identify as black, though, but there still is, I think, this huge part of my psyche that is white, you know, because I was raised as a white middle-class kid in Wisconsin, you know, and as a kid, you know, you, you kind of go through these phases where you take on different identities and masks and ways of being, and I just, I would forget sometimes, you know, that I wasn't white, and I think I had a image of myself that was different and then when I was in high school and I was straight at that point in time straight ish uh, I had a girlfriend who was biracial and adopted by white parents as well and we were just like this like we finally like I found another like black sheep and we just came together and created our own world and they had like a minority youth group at the school we have 1200 kids at our school and there was like 10 of us that were in this thing and it was just refreshing and I I kind of started wearing like these African medallions that were really popular back then in the late 80s and you know had like my hair faded with the Gumby cut and it just I felt really excited to lean into that reality that I hadn't really participated in and then I moved to Minneapolis like the day after I graduated from high school and while Minnesota is still very white like the Twin Cities have a large you know black population and it was just so healing to just be around other people. And I made the choice that I wanted to create a place in within Black culture. And so through a whole bunch of different things, I traveled to Brazil like 13 times between 2001 and 2012. So I could root myself in that type of Black culture. I did a lot. Like I, the Black identity that I constructed is like no joke. <laughs> it's no joke. And it's mine, because I made it myself. <laughs> Nathan, can I, can I ask what you think the, the biggest issues with transracial adoption are at the moment? And what you think can be done to improve the situation, if you think it's a situation that needs improving? Yeah. Well, just, you know, speaking of the U.S., I just feel like it needs... And I think they're starting to get a little bit of, bit better, but I feel like they cast, like, this wide net where they're like, oh, well, we're not going to let white people adopt. We're going to let black... We're going to try to find black people. You know, that's great and stuff, but I, I just think that there are, you know, sometimes white people will adopt children of color, and that's just a fact, and I think that people just need to embrace that. But I think what needs to change is that there just needs to be a more solid educational aspect 
for white parents before they actually even get to the point of um, finalizing anything. You know, as people always say too, like if you're think if you're white and you're thinking about adopting a black child, like you should ask yourself first, do you have any black friends? You know, and if you don't even have one black friend, then you need to spend a year or two and just kind of like root yourself in that reality because that's that speaks volumes. And I think that there just needs to be like cultural sensitivity and you know, black history, just different things like that, that they, they must be required to learn for a year or so before they actually can start the process. I just think it's really crucial. And they don't do anything like that here, as far as I know. Um, and it's, it's sad, you know, because I think it's almost as if they, it doesn't matter. Like, it's not important because love wins at the end of the day. And I'm like, sometimes love just isn't yeah. enough. If you want to have a kid that's not completely messed up in the head and it's going to like hate you we haven't interestingly really talked about your experience as a gay parent or a gay child mm -hmm. yeah a funny little story my parents when i graduated from high school and i was still kind of you know coming to terms with my sexuality and stuff but i'd come out to them when i was 22 they went to some i don't know if you have like p flag over there it's like that parents and friends of lesbians and gays it's one of those support groups so they went to some group like that in my hometown and they told me about it and I was horrified because I wasn't still really comfortable and I thought oh my god if there's parents of kids that I went to high school with and they said yeah you know we were talking about you in the group and we kind of came to the conclusion that because you were biracial and gay and adopted by white parents that your your younger life must have been really challenging and I'm like uh yeah like that's what I've been trying to tell you for the last like at that point, like 20 some years or whatever. But it was really interesting to hear my life like contextualized like that, you know, because I never really thought about it like that. It was just the cards that I was dealt and I just figured it out. But it did add a whole other layer of oppression, I think, to just psychologically try to integrate yourself when you have all these areas of being shunned and omitted and kind of looked at like there's something wrong with you. And then finally maybe getting into the fold of the black community and then you know the black church in the u.s is like has had a history of a lot of issues with homophobia not to say that the white churches haven't but then you kind of get into that fold and then you realize that you're being rejected because you're gay you know and so it's like well where can you turn you know so thankfully i think like the black community black gay community in the u.s has just been very strong for a very long time as far as creating a chosen family. Black gay brothers are a really great support system for me, so yeah. Before we went on to the conversation about when you were younger, I was just thinking the differences between the adoption processes, I suppose, between the UK and the US. Because I feel, and correct me if I'm wrong, Leon, on this, but I feel that through the whole process in the UK that we'd go through, the cultural education and understanding would come up quite a lot in the various panels or is that something you don't think does happen enough here in the UK Leon? I don't think it's a good question actually I don't think our system does that per se I think a lot of that does really need to come from the adopters that I've spoken to they almost feel that well you know there should be people from the black community for example who are supporting them with their um bringing their child and implementing this culture which I always push back that's that was your decision so that needs to come from you you need to do the work you need to you know understand the cultural differences and the important things that's on you and also you need to understand that being a parent of a black child what that's going to come with are you willing to take on your child's oppression and 
you know, trauma and everything else. I've been offered a, a role to sit on panel for an, for an adoption organisation. And one of the key things that I've been or shown interest in and they've received it well is making sure that I'm sat on panels where transracial adoption is taking place. Because I feel like a lot of the white panel members just simply don't know the questions to ask. And it kind of brings back to what we were saying earlier on. It's almost like, well, I don't want to say the wrong thing, so I'll just not ask. But in this situation, you can't not ask. You need to understand, is this going to be the right match for the child? And of course, all children need love. That That's a no-brainer. But as Nathan said, it, it requires more than just love. It requires understanding and education. And you, you, you need to do the work. So I think... You know, when I start panel, which I'm super excited about, I'm going to ask those questions. And, you know, it may be uncomfortable for some of the other panel members who are not used to those questions, but it's so important. I was just going to say, like, I, I got this thought of, I got really into this book, White Fragility, during this whole time with George Floyd and some situations that were happening with white fa family members and me. I think that there is a huge aspect of white fragility that has to be conquered within some of these parents that are that do get really triggered and they do get really uncomfortable and you just really have to ask well why why is it such a big deal but i think that that plays a huge part in it you know it's just so much yeah i mean there's so many questions and so many scenarios it's just like never ending you know but i think that's amazing and i think people need to be feel uncomfortable because I felt uncomfortable all my childhood, you know, so like what's feeling uncomfortable on a panel or <laughs> something for like a moment or a year, even like having to take classes and stuff like nothing compared to this, the, what your children have to go through. So totally. You've mentioned parenting missions, I think, in relation to your own adoptive family's mission, etc. So to end this conversation today, Nathan, I just wanted to know, what would you say is your ultimate parenting mission for your own, own children? I'm taking a really holistic approach because I, because of my experience, I understand that there are all of these different areas that must be attended to. And I have to stay conscious enough to be aware of it because I kind of, I can kind of understand why my parents just slipped out of that. And being people who have never been an other like, how would they know? You know what I mean? But then even me being an other and having gone through that, I have to constantly remind myself. So I think just attending to all of those needs and then just creating an environment that is, which my parents did do, open conversation. They were always willing to say, like, you can come to us and talk about anything. And I think that's really important, too, depending on where we end up. And my daughter has got, like, her name is... And I just want her to be able to come to me if she's got, has some sort of racial issue or questions about her birth parents, because there's a lot of mental health challenges going on. I think just hypothetically, like being available to discuss those stories and be honest with them, you know, just transparency and cultural immersion and awareness and creating an open environment to talk. Those things are really important mm -hmm. to me. That's brilliant advice, I think, as well for, for anyone listening and in similar situations to you. So thank you today. Oh, thank you, Nathan. I appreciate it. It's this been was brilliant. Fun. I, I love talking about this mm, stuff. Yeah, so thank you so much for it. So interesting. Me. And I yeah, trust that you're you, writing Leon. a book on the subject or in some way. Uh, not yet, but I've thought yeah. about it. In <laughs> Someday for sure. in, in my spare time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
Nathan, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, Lottie and Stu, for letting me come back as a guest host. And it's nice to chat to you again. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. We've loved having you on. Thank you. Do you want to tell our listeners where they can contact us? Oh, privilege. Okay. So you can contact some families on Instagram or Twitter at somefamiliespod or you can email at somefamilies at storyhunter.co.uk. Leon, you're about to read my part. Thank you very much. He's not coming back as a guest host again, Lottie, if he's going to step over my lines. Go on, Leon, you tell them where our website is at. Are you sure? I've been dying to this whole episode. So the website is <laughs> www.somefamiliespod.com where you can find full transcripts and past episodes. Thanks for listening. Or would you like to do my part, Stu? <laughs> okay, well, thanks for listening, everyone. And we hope that you did enjoy this episode. And honestly, Leon, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it was so wonderful to have you with us here today. We'll be back next week with another episode. So until then... Goodbye. Bye. This episode was produced and edited by Hattie Moyer. Some Families is a Story Hunter production. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.